welcome to Filmography in Focus, where we do deep dives into the filmographies of directors, franchises, and genres to bring into focus the motifs, techniques, and themes used throughout so that we can fall in love with these films all over again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Filmography in Focus. This month, we are looking at the works of director Steven Spielberg. Since Spielberg has a career spanning something like 33 films as a director and dozens more as producer, over seven decades at this point, we will focus on his theatrical film releases that came out prior to 1990. This includes 1974's Sugarland Express, 1975's Jaws, 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1979's 1941, 1981's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1982's E.T. Extraterrestrial, 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, 1985's The Color Purple, 1987's Empire of the Sun, and 1989's Always, as well as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I also looked at his 1968 short film, Amblin, for which his company Amblin Entertainment is named after. Perhaps in a future episode, we'll cover his future work after 1990. The full list of films can be found in my letterbox, link in the show notes. I also do from the body of work of various video essays out there, and those will be credited at the end of the episode, and also link in the show notes as well as on Letterboxd. This discussion will include spoilers. It's not meant to be really a critique or review of these films, more so an observation on the motifs and techniques used, and a meditation on the themes that recur throughout his works. Alright, let's get into it. What marks the beginning of summer for you? For kids, summer break might mean no more school, and that's an easy one for them to figure it out. For adults, not much may change at work, aside from the appearance of summer interns. Maybe it's the weather growing warmer, or the easing up of springtime allergies. If you go by dates, the technical start of summer, the technical start of summer is the summer solstice, though being in mid-June, many consider Memorial Day at the end of May to be the unofficial kickoff to the summer season with a long weekend of barbecues and beaches. For me personally, I start thinking it's summer when the big summer blockbusters start playing in the multiplex, though if that's the case, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has pushed the start of summer back further and further each year with 2019 starting in late April. My family is spread out across the country, but we always try to meet them on Memorial Day weekend somewhere near my parents' place and spend a long weekend together. Part of that is finding time to see whatever big film happens to be in theaters. The past couple of years have been films such as Aladdin, Solo, A Star Wars Story, and the latest Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Obviously, in the odd times we find ourselves now, there really hasn't been a chance to see a movie in theaters for months now, and the next blockbuster film still on the release schedule is Christopher Nolan's Tenet, scheduled for mid-July. We'll save Mr. Nolan for another episode of this podcast, but in lieu of tying this episode to any particular film coming out, I wanted to look back on the to the grandfather of what we know of as the modern blockbuster, Mr. New Hollywood himself, Steven Spielberg. Born in 1946 in Cincinnati, Ohio, Spielberg was born to the Orthodox Jewish family of Arnold and Leah Spielberg, the only son among four siblings. His father was an engineer who worked in computers and was instrumental in the development of the electronic point-of-sale cash register, as well as serving as an airplane operator in World War II. His mother was a concert pianist and restaurateur. After a brief stint living in New Jersey, the Spielbergs moved to Phoenix, Arizona when Stephen was age seven. 
at 12 years old, he started using his dad's 8mm camera to make short films, such as that of a train wreck featuring his model trains, or one for his Boy Scouts photography mirrored bats called Last Gunfight. In fact, eventually becoming an Eagle Scout later on in his career, he would actually go on to help develop the requirements for the cinematography mirrored bats. He kept up his amateur filmmaking, including a 40-minute war film called Escape to Nowhere that won him an award for a local prize at age 13, and a full-length independent science fiction film called Firelight, which was at age 16, and he made it for about $500, mostly bought from his dad, and it was actually profitable showing at a local theater for a couple nights, if only barely. He was a racist film nut, citing classics such as Victor Fleming's Captain Courageous, Disney's Pinocchio, John Ford's How Green Was My Valley, the Godzilla film King of the Monsters, various Hitchcock films, and David Lean's epic Lawrence of Arabia as major inspirations for him. During one of his summer vacations while still in Phoenix, he was even able to visit the Universal Studios lot, and even became friendly enough with the guards to be able to just walk on set without a pass. Though the common urban legend that he got his start in cinema by sneaking on set and finding an office, an empty office, may be a bit exaggerated. In any case, he moved to Saratoga, California for his final year of high school, and this happened to be around the same time his parents divorced. As a student, he was able to get an unpaid internship at Universal Studios in the editing department. Eventually, though, he was able to make a 26-minute film, Amblin, with the support of producer Dennis Hoffman, which went on to win various film festival awards. Spielberg so impressed the VP of production at Universal Television, Sid Scheinberg, with his work that he got offered a seven-year contract to direct for the studio, the youngest person ever to receive such a deal. This led up to him dropping out of college to direct, direct, direct professionally, although he would later go back to Cal State University at Long Beach to get his Bachelor of Arts in film in 2002, even after receiving five honorary degrees from other colleges. Apparently, he used his Best Picture award-winning film, Schindler's List, uh, to pass out of the advanced filmmaking class. In any case, as an early director for television, his first job was directing a pilot for the show Night Gallery, starring comedian Joan Crawford. Apparently, there was some tension with the older established crew about having a young 22-year-old direct them around, but uh, Spielberg soon proved his worth. Uh, After directing some more television series from 1969 to 1970, he filmed his first television movie, Duel, in 1971, as well as the television films Something Evil and Savage in 1972 and 1973. Eventually, he was able to make his theatrical debut in 1974 with the crime drama The Sugarland Express starring Goldie Hawn, which is based on a real-life incident involving a Texas highway patrolman being held hostage that happened a few years prior. The following year, Spielberg would work with the same producers of Sugarland Express, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, on his breakout success, Joss, which is based on the novel by Peter Bensley and featured his frequent collaborator at the time, Richard Dreyfus. While the term blockbuster has been thrown around since the 1930s in the early age of Hollywood, Jaws is really considered the first modern blockbuster. Despite a lot of problems during production that would have Spielberg describing the production as his personal crucible, one example of this being the Sark robot often breaking down, Despite all these, or perhaps because of it, because it forced him to get creative, Joss would become the highest grossing film of all time up until Star Wars took that title away a few years later. Joss's impact on the movie industry cannot be overstated. While nowadays it goes without saying that summer is the time for the highest grossing films to be released, before Joss, summer was 
summer was considered a dumping ground of poor performing films with winter being where most of the major releases were were set out Joss also pioneered the idea of a wide release with a lot of television advertising and merchandise to drum up uh, you know, audience support as opposed to a more staggered word-of-mouth platform that relied on print reviews and magazines starting in a few theaters and slowly building out to a wider release. Finally, Joss also pioneered the idea of the high-concept film, a film that can be described by its look, its hook, and its book book referring to the various merchandise used to promote the film, as opposed to the more auteur-driven films up to that point. With the success of Jaws, Spielberg had pretty much free reign to do whatever he wanted. Rather than directing the Jaws sequel, or King Kong, or Superman, Spielberg instead opted to revisit his childhood film Firelight and both write and direct the alien sci-fi film Close Encounters with the Third Kind, again working with Richard Dreyfuss and netting him his first Best Director nomination. This also began his work with longtime editor Michael Kahn. His f- next film was the World War II comedy Forest 1941, written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, set in California in the days immediately after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. While not the best-reviewed film of Spielberg's films, it does feature a large ensemble ca- cast, including Japanese actor Toshiro Mufune in the only English film that uses his own non-dubbed voice, as well as the award-nominated special, various award-nominated special effects sequences, and it would go on to achieve cult status thanks to home me- a home media extended cut. Spielberg's next project would be a collaboration with Star Wars' George Lucas and the Harrison Ford-led adventure film franchise Indiana Jones, with Raiders of the Lost Ark coming in 1981, followed by Temple of Dune in 1984, and Last Crusade in 1989. As an homage to the cliffhanger film serials of the 1930s and the golden age of Hollywood, on a personal note for Spielberg, he would go on to meet his future wife, Kate Capshaw, working on Temple of Doom. Between the first and second Indiana Jones film, however, Spielberg would have yet another summer blockbuster in E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Not only would this film save the Reese's Chocolate Candy brand, it also ended up becoming the highest grossing film up until that point, a title Spielberg would hold onto until he would be dethroned 11 years later by, well, himself with Jurassic Park. The title for E.T. came from a project called Night Skies that he had developed during Close Encounters with the Third Kind with influences from his childhood imaginary alien friend that he used to cope with his parents' divorce. 1985 would prove to be a pivotal year for Spielberg. He got married to actress Amy Irving and had his first son, though he would later be divorced in 1989 due to career differences. But he would also pivot and start covering more serious matters in his adaptations of Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, starring a young Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. It would go on to receive 11 Oscar nominations, though it wouldn't win any, which is actually a record for most Oscar nominations without any wins, uh, a record it shares with the film The Turning Point. Spielberg would, however, get his first Director Guild of America award for Best Director, in fact being the first director to do so without being nominated for the Oscar. He would follow this up in 1987 with the young Christian Bale-led Empire of the Sun, telling the story of the prisoner of wars in living in a Japanese uh, in prisoner of war camp in China. Spielberg had actually joined as a producer with Sir David Lean as director before the Lawrence of Arabia director passed the project on to Spielberg. It was also the first American film shot in Shanghai as China had, was just beginning to open up to the West. 
And then, to round out the decade, aside from the aforementioned third Indiana Jones film, Spielberg would reunite with collaborator Richard Dreyfuss for his romantic dramedy, Always, about a firefighter pilot ghost that was a remake of the 1943 drama A Guy Named Joe. Apparently, during the making of Jaws, Spielberg and Dreyfus would trade quips from the earlier film with each other. This film would also be the last appearance of film legend Audrey Hepburn. Aside from directing, in these early years, Spielberg would also begin producing films himself. Some of these films include 1982's Poltergeist, which he also wrote, the 1983 Twilight Zone movie, which he directed some segments of, 1984's Gremlins, 1985's The Goonies, where he served as second unit director, the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Don Bluth animated films An American Tale and The Land Before Time, among many others. Of course, directorial-wise, he would have many more hits in the coming decades. Jurassic Park, Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, and Ready Player One on the more blockbuster side of things, and also more serious films such as Schindler's List, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, Bridge of Spies, Lincoln, and many more. Not to mention his work as the founder of DreamWorks Studio and his work in television. That said, we're about uh, 13 minutes uh, into this episode so far, uh, so we'll go ahead and save those for another episode. Now, now that we've covered a third of Spielberg's career so far, what are the techniques, especially in these early years, that would signal it's his work? For one, Spielberg is pretty synonymous actually with composer John Williams. John Williams has worked with Spielberg on all but five of Spielberg's films, uh, the only one discussed in this episode being The Color Purple, uh, not being not scored by Williams. While working with a master such as Williams definitely goes a long way to help making his films memorable, uh, the score that he that the score that Williams and the, and the themes that they come up with help really identify the films and make it stick in your head. For example, just take a listen to these four themes from his early films. These were in order, Indiana Jones, Jaws, E.T., and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
Another example, in the score for Sugarland Express, the use of harmonica throughout actually adds to the Texan Western feel uh, a la Bonnie and Clyde that these two characters find themselves in. Of course, beyond simply being uh, memorable identifiers for the film overall, these scores also serve as markers within the film so that on a subconscious level you identify with the character in question. For example, in the production of Jaws, the robot shark Bruce would break down so often as we had mentioned before, and that limited the amount of time it appears on screen. In fact, it only appears on screen for about 4 minutes out of the 2 hour runtime, and we only see it in full only about an hour and 15 minutes in. And yet, whenever throughout the film the presence of Bruce is suggested, uh, the two tuba notes, dun, 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 you know, helps us cue the audience in that it's there. And this also goes to raising tension, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, another example of kind of the music kind of giving a cue to a particular character on screen, uh, the sidekick character of Sword Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom actually has his own theme song. Whenever Swartround does something heroic, his little jingle plays. Uh, in the clip I'll play uh, right in a second, he actually he's escaping his way from the slave mine on his way to free Indiana Jones of some magical mind control. And his jingle plays as he swings to a rope to escape, kicking down a ladder with his pursuers uh, to throw them off. See if you can hear his theme. Spielberg's use of music throughout films uh, allows him to engage with us both orally as well as visually. Uh, in fact, in his earlier short film Amblin, there was actually no dialogue at all. Uh, he opted to only use the score to help carry the emotional beats of the story, though also I believe part of it, the deal with Dennis Hoffman, was that uh, he would feature music by a band that Hoffman was managing for as well. So that kind of explains how, how that came about. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind has the theme of aliens communicating with humans primarily through a musical tonal language. And, you know, characters uh, have meaningful relationships expressed through songs in his other films. Uh, some examples include the Jitterbug scene in 1941, uh, the, choir the choir song Soogan in Empire of the Sun, or Smoke Gets in Your Eyes Always. Uh, in Always. Um, in The Color Purple in particular, there are two awesome songs. In Miss Seely's Blues, uh, which has actually kind of gone on to become a blues uh, musical centerpiece independent of the film, and God is trying to tell you something in the gospel scene. Low-key, those are two of my favorite scenes in pretty much anything I watched uh, for this episode. Um, I'd like to think perhaps that his strong appreciation for music in, uh, f comes from his mother's career as a concert pianist. 
you know, speaking of engaging us, you know, visually in addition to orally, uh, while it is a bit harder to demonstrate over audio, Spielberg's long history of messing around with his father's 8mm camera has led him to become very comfortable using the camera in his films. You know, one of the first shots in the short film Amelon that I noticed that really captured my attention was this shot of the two characters making their way through an abandoned farm. Uh, the camera, you know, the tracks with them. It swings around fence posts and you know goes back behind walls, but never actually cuts away from them until they moved on to the next scene. Uh, you know, as I did research for this episode, I found a surprising number of one shots from Spielberg that you know you wouldn't expect or realize were there until they were pointed out to you. Every frame of painting calls this the Spielberg Wonder. You know, unlike most extended shot sequences that tend to call attention to themselves because you know they're just super long, or you know they're super complex and have almost impossible camera moves. Spielberg's one takers, for lack of a better word, seem more natural. Um, they kind of move along with the audience. Um, you know, and they don't draw attention to themselves by being super complicated. In fact, in some cases, the camera is just still and locked into place. Um, but because of the way things are blocked around or the way the background moves, um, they the it still remains interesting to the audience. Um, some example of this is the drinking scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, the fairy conversation scene in Joss. E.T. entering Elliot's room, uh, or the costume party, M Empire of the Sun. You know, sometimes the one shots are from static shots, sometimes they are handheld, but again, they all feel very natural, you know, as opposed to, say, David Fincher's inhuman, omniscient one takes. Um, another camera trick Spielberg uses is the dolly zoom. Uh, we'll talk a bit about this in a little bit more in a moment, but this is a camera trick where the camera is pushed off into or away from the subject on a smooth dolly while you know the zoom goes in or out um you know if, it's, if you're zooming if you're pushing in you'll zoom out if you're pulling away you zoom in uh, this cause this is a disorienting effect that makes the foreground and background seem to move in relation to each other um this is most famously used by spielberg in the beat scene in josh but also appears in et and in fact in another work he produced but didn't direct poltergeist uh, Spielberg will often use mirrors also to show a character's face while showing something else important in the scene, um, sometimes even overlaying them. Uh, for example, in his early films, characters' eyes are portrayed in rearview mirrors, such as in Amblin, Sugarland Express, uh, or Indiana Jones even, and, Tem and uh, Empire of the Sun. Um, and sometimes, you know, they're, they're just simply reflected in the reflective surface, such as the flight control operator's faces are reflected in their terminals in close encounters of the third kind. Um, while this isn't quite so common of films in this era, they will become prevalent in more future years based on the montages that I was able to find online. Um, you know, Spielberg is also very conscientious about where and how he places his camera um, to cause empathy with the uh, with the characters on screen. Uh, for example, in E.T., rather than shooting from a usual height, uh, he intentionally has his camera shooting from a low angle looking up, uh, repl reflecting the childlike point of view of Elliot and of E.T. You know, I think all of these camera shots, the one take, the dolly zoom, reflection shots, um, intentional camera placement, lead up to the most signature of signature of Spielberg camera tricks, uh, the Spielberg face. Um, I'd call the Spielberg face a shot where the camera tracks in, often zooming in, uh, into the character's face uh, while they have a look of wonder or awe at something off screen. Uh, sometimes the camera from there will pan around to whatever it is they were looking at. Sometimes they'll cut to their point of view or maybe a 
threat per, uh, over the solar shot. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, human beings as creatures naturally will identify with another human's face. It's why you sometimes find yourself finding faces in places where there are none, such as patterns in a piece of wood or using the grill and headlights of a car, making it look like a face. Uh, by focusing in on the character's faces during a very emotional movement moment, uh, Spielberg helps us connect emotionally with the characters and empathize with them and feel what they are feeling, even subconsciously. Uh, all of the other tricks I mentioned are just about building rapport and relationship with the audience and what they think, uh, and with the character on screen, on screen, and what the characters are thinking, uh, without breaking immersion with a cut away to show their reaction or what's going on in the environment around them. It conveys it all in one take. Um, there are literally too many examples of this to list in this episode, even in just these films. Um, so just, you know, whenever you w watch a Spielberg film, uh, especially for the next episode, we'll do that happens to have Spielberg on it. Uh, just watch out for the Spielberg face. And, you know, finally, while this isn't just one technique in general, uh, Spielberg may be known for directing action, adventure films, and the occasional science fiction film. But frankly speaking, a lot of his films have their genetics and roots in the language of horror films, particularly Alfred Hitchcock films. Uh, for example, the aforementioned Dolly Zoom uh, was made famous by Alfred Hitchcock in the film Vertigo as a way to show the, the titular dizzying condition. Um, beyond that, though, a lot of what Spielberg does is play into the building and release of tension in a scene to a very satisfying climax. If you think about it, a lot of action is about whether or not a character will or won't make it out of some perilous situation. Um, there has to just be enough uncertainty about the outcome um, to make you wonder if they're actually going to make it out. And then the timing of the resolution that, oh, they will be okay, ha has to be just right to achieve maximum satisfaction. Too soon, and it doesn't feel like there was anything at stake. Too long, and it feels a little bit drawn out. You know, this tension can be accomplished through various ways. Uh, you can do it through editing by prolonging moments however long they would actually be in real life by cutting in between various elements. Um, sometimes it's about, you know, again, playing into the character's face and what they're thinking and feeling. Um, you know, sometimes it's not about not explicitly showing the threat, but by hinting at it in other means. Um, although, again, some of this comes from production limitations, but making the most of what you've got is the trait of a great director, I'd say. Um, some examples for this, you know, in Sugarland Express, there's a lot of tension when Lewis, when Clovis and Lou Jean are in the sights of snipers who are about to take them out. Um, that almost feels like a horror movie at that point, you know. As Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock said, you know, if a bomb blows up out of nowhere, um, you know, in a conversation scene, then you maybe give the audience 10 seconds of thrill and surprise. If you tell them there's a bomb and then so the and then have them talking for five minutes, you've given them five minutes of tension. Spielberg does the same thing here. You know, Jaws especially is like this, pretty much all of Jaws, but the highest points are particularly the beat scene where Officer Brody is worried about the Sark and any splash they made make you think, is that the Sark? Is that the Sark? Um, you know, the scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where the aliens take away Barry is pretty terrifying. You know, the house is shaking, the lights are coming in, you're not sure if they're actually going to get in or not, the mom keeps trying to scare them away, um, but then finally they end up getting the kid, um, and that's pretty terrifying, you know, kind of, like, it reads something like a slasher film if you think about it in that way. You know, anytime Indiana Jones has to escape a trap is, you know, again, there's an insurmountable doom in the set piece, um, and you know, will he will he get around it? That's the question. Uh, Et from Et's perspective uh, in the early part of the movie, um, he comes up across the men in black, the government agents, but they're all faceless. You don't see them, and they're very terrifying, and they're chasing him. Right? That sounds like a horror movie to me. 
uh, in the color purple when Celie has a razor. Uh, she's about to save Mister. There's a lot of tension in that scene of will something go wrong? Will she end up literally being a slasher and killing him? Um, one other quick technique that actually combines this camera work with his horror films, uh, Spielberg tends to portray the unknown in his films through light, whereas most directors would do it through darkness and shadow. Um, the most obvious example of this are the alien lights in E.T. or in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, or you know, in Empire of the Sun when the atomic bomb goes off, there's a brilliant white light, and everyone's wondering what is that. Um, or even like you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the light contained within the Lost Ark. Um, on the flip side, you know, Spielberg also has a penchant for uh, sewing the shadows of his characters on the wall, be this Indiana Jones coming up on Marion, you know, with his light reflected in this, uh, his shadow coming off of the fire, or in the color purple, there's that transition scene from young Silly to old Silly, where she's reading a book, uh, Oliver Twist, and you see it through her, her progression through the shadow on the wall. So, with all of these techniques, what are the common motifs to pay attention to throughout his films? You know, if last month's director's David Fincher was all about films taking place in major cities and showing the darkness of the world, um, Spielberg is about showing small-town Americana and, frankly, kind of the upbeat, middle-class values of Americana. Uh, the closest thing to a major American city in these films would be Los Angeles in 1941, and even then, the hustle and bustle of the big city only makes up a very small part of the film. All the characters really you feel are small-time, uh, small-town uh, heroes. Um, Amity Island in Jaws, the various Texan towns in Sugarland Express, uh, the rural South in Color Purple, suburban California in E.T., and Flat Rock, Colorado in Always are just other examples of, again, this small-town Americana feel. Um, I think the exception would be Indiana Jones, but again, again, most of that takes place outside of the U.S., you know, I think part of this leads into the fact that, for the most part, Spielberg's protagonists tend to be pretty ordinary middle-class folks. Um, however, these ordinary people get put into extraordinary situations, and that's kind of the thrust of most of his films. Uh, Matthew Brody needs to deal as just an everyday, you know, uh, policeman from New York who moves up to, you know, Amity Island, and now he has to deal with a man-eating shark. Uh, Clovis and Lugene are just, you know, two runaways from the law, pretty ordinary folk. All they want to do is get with their kid again, but they end up becoming, you know, pretty famous hometown heroes almost, modern-day Bonnie and Clyde, uh, with the people of the towns kind of, you know, giving them a parade. Um, you know, the war, you know, which is previously a distant thing, comes to the backyard of Los Angelinos uh, in 1941. You know, Christian Bale is brought uh, into World War II in Empire of the Sun. Um, this even, you know, this is even stated, outstated outright in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when Richard Dreyfuss's character is just told, said he's one of just many ordinary people who were called the Devil's Tower by the aliens. Um, and eventually he goes off into space just a completely normal, you know, human being. You know, even Indiana Jones, who is, you know, all but a world-trekking, badass, Nazi-fighting archaeologist playboy. You know, he just does what he does because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He just he sees himself as a humble professor as just what, does doing what he needs to do to get these artifacts into the museum where they belong. You know, the fact that in in the third Indiana Jones, uh, you know, young River Phoenix played the young Indiana Jones as a as a Boy Scout uh, of all places, and homage to Spielberg's past as a scout, and again helps bring up that Americana feel to his films. Um, if anything, the most badass of these characters, Daredevil Peter Sanditch, uh, played by Richard Dreyfuss in Always, is you know the only protagonist of his that is a badass, but he ends up dying for his evil Knievel ways, even if it was for a pretty honest purpose. Um, you know, 
that honesty of his characters aside, Spielberg often focuses on the family unit within his films. And in particular, he ends up uh, focusing on the dynamic between parent and child, and even more specifically, uh, the tension between fathers and children uh, in the fractured family. Uh, He's explicitly said before that his parents' divorce had a huge impact on him, and it took many years from him before he had a good relationship with his father again. Um, so perhaps his films were a way for him to work through that trauma. Um, and in that case, I mean, we ended up getting some great films. But yeah, um, in any case, going just going through his films quickly, you know, Sugarland Express, Clovis ends up getting killed and it will end up becoming an absent father, um, you know, just trying to get his kid back in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Dreyfus's character ends up abandoning his family to go into space uh, as his obsession with the visions grow. Uh, side note, uh, because this was actually filmed before Spielberg became a father, uh, he, Steven Spielberg said that he would ne- he could never imagine making this film now, uh, given that he is a father. He wouldn't be able to have his characters, you know, abandon his kids like that. Um, in 1941, you know, it features a somewhat clueless and inadvertently uh, destructive father. You know, Indiana Jones uh, in Temp- in Last Crusade uh, comes to term with his relationship with his estranged father, played by Sean Connery. Um, you know, Seely and the Color Purple, you know has a rough relationship with her father, uh, to say, say the least. And Mr. Danny Glover, you know, isn't the greatest paternal role model either. Uh, Christian Bale's character in Empire of the Stun is separated from his parents and ends up finding his own, you know, uh, pseudo-family in the prisoner of war camp. And, you know, perhaps most explicitly, E.T. is a film about a family growing through a parental separation with the alien coming in at a time, at this crucial time to help the children cope with whatever's going on, much like how Spielberg coped with his parents' divorce by coming up with an imaginary friend alien. You know, Spielberg's dad had many more influences on his films beyond, you know, the whole divorce thing, though. Uh, Spielberg is pretty obsessed with the sky in general, but more specifically with airplanes, uh, specifically World War II planes. Uh, this is probably because his father was a World War II pilot, and he grew up on those stories as a on his father's stories as a airplane radio operator, you know, uh, in 1941, uh, Empire of the Sun, and always, all of these explicitly have ties to airplanes and often World War II airplanes. Indiana Jones is set in the general time period and has its fair share of airplane scenes. You know, we extend it from airplanes and World War II airplanes to uh, aircraft in general, you can also include close encounters in ET with their UFOs and flight control you know, as well uh, in his obsession with flying things. You know, Spielberg's dad also influenced him with his love of shooting stars. Apparently, as a kid, uh, his dad took young Spielberg out to see a meteor shower, uh, which is, you know, a pretty magical moment for young Spielberg. And you can see uh, shooting stars in Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Indiana Jones. Um, you know, fun fact, it actually turns out that that first shooting star that appears in the background of Jaws actually was a complete coincidence. It was a natural shooting star that happened to come up during filming that scene. Uh, but from that point on, Spielberg kind of started including artificial uh, shooting stars in his films kind of as a good luck charm. Another type of star that Spielberg is, express- is obsessed with are Hollywood stars. Yeah, save your shaming me with a pun for another time. Uh, we already knew that Spielberg got into making movies because he loved watching movies. And he pays homage to those films that got him into film by showing them, you know, old films and television shows on TV screens in his films. Um, the one that appears most often uh, is for some reason Looney Tunes. Um, 
but you know, this perhaps for, foreshadowed his relationship as a producer for the Tiny Toons Adventures. But in any case, uh, in E.T., for example, uh, E.T. learns to talk by listening to Sesame Street on TV. And the Disney films Dumbo and Pinocchio are both referenced in 1941 and Close Encounters separately. Um, yeah, so, it's, you know, next time you're watching a Spielberg movie, you know, pay attention to what's showing on TV. It may be, you know, a nice little Easter egg. Um, speaking of Easter eggs, uh, Spielberg often will poke fun at his own movies uh, in other films of his. Uh, the same actress who got killed in the opening scenes of Jaws uh, reprises her role as a skinny dipper uh, that gets uh, yeah, gets caught by the Japanese sub in 1941. Uh, and Indiana Jones, uh, in Temple of Doom, he tries to recreate the gun versus sword effect uh, that he did in Raiders of the Lost Ark, though uh, to pretty different effect. Um in any case, so given all of these motifs and techniques, what, if anything, is Spielberg trying to say to us uh, in his films? You know, on one hand, Spielberg has his characters deal with loss of innocence in the world, and frankly, they just sometimes need to survive. You know, Captain Tanner has to break his word to Lou Jean and Clovis in Sugarland Express and has to kill the first man in his career in his career as Seraph. Uh, Jaws, you know, inspired a huge real-life fear of of the oceans, um, but that also likely came in in universe. People became afraid of going to the beach. Um, I don't know if that actually happened. You know, I don't know if Jaws two or Jaws three carried that on, but whatever. Um, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind has you know Richard Dreyfuss's children lose faith in their father when he abandons them. Uh, Elliot, you know, has to deal with E.T. going away on top of you know dealing with his parents' divorce, uh, and you know Celie has to deal with pretty much your, her entire life uh, being pretty shitty in, in The Color Purple. You know, perhaps most explicitly, this idea of loss of innocence comes in uh, Christian Bale's character has to learn what that what the Japanese army really is like when he becomes the prisoner of war, when he so naively, you know, at first thinks, oh yeah, I'll just join them, I'll join the Japanese army, like it doesn't work like that, kid. Um, however, you know, to counterpoint this negativity, I think there is still the idea that in this world, there is still wonder to be found. You know, as early as in Amblin, you know, the two hitchhikers discover a fun time on the road, you know, with each other when, you know, th things seem pretty grim as hitchhikers. Um, Richard Dreyfuss' marine biologist, you know, despite everything going on in Joss, can't help but be in awe of the wonder that is the Sark, that is the killing scene. You know, as does Richard Dreyfuss' character in Close Encounters with his awe at the aliens. Um, and again, Elliot does the same thing with E.T. In Always, uh, Audrey Hepburn's character kind of explains the idea of where our inspiration comes from, the spirits of those who have gone before us. Um, you know, and perhaps most explicitly in this theme of, you know, there is still wonder in, to be discovered in our world. Indiana Jones is all about how in our own real life world, perhaps in some flung far corner of the world, buried in some tomb somewhere, there is magic out there, be it, you know, the lost artifact from the Bible or some ancient blood magic, Kalima. Um... In Spielberg's films, you know, there honestly also aren't that many human bad guys, um, with the notable exception of the Nazis, of course. Uh, Celie's father in The Color Purple is probably the next closest thing to a true villain that we see. But aside from that, if you think about it, all of the characters in the films are simply doing their best to survive in the world. You know, you can't really fault anyone in Sugarland Express for doing what they do. They're just trying to make their way in the world. Um... And as much as the mayor of Amity kind of mirrors the modern-day response to coronavirus and wanting to downplay the public health hazard in pursuit of, you know, economic profits for his town, you can't help but, you know, ask someone responsible for the town. That's kind of one of the things he's, he's concerned about. Um, 
you know, the Japanese in 1941 are more comically incompetent than truly bad. And there was a certain degree of empathy and humanity placed upon the Japanese in Empire of the Sun that in another World War II film that might not be there. You know, the government forces and close encounters and an ET simply are, you know, they may seem kind of scary, but they're simply doing what they, what if you think about it, is a pretty objective response to finding out there's an alien that's landed in the States. Um, and again, the Nazis are pretty much a clear bad guy throughout all the Indiana Jones films. But frankly speaking, if what it takes to become a bad guy is you have to be a literal Nazi. Um, and it seems to show that he has a pretty positive view on humanity, aside from those couple of bad apples you know, back in World War II. No, if anything, I think Spielberg seems to comment on the idea that we can all get together, especially if the effort of communication is made, and it's the and communication is the make or break deal in finding peace. Maybe this goes back to again his parents, his parents' divorce. Maybe his dad being a radio operator, his mom being a, a concert pianist, are ways to communicate. You know, in Amblin, the girl leaves the boy after realizing he hasn't fully communicated what kind of person he is. All the trouble in Sugarland in 1941 could easily have been avoided if there was a simply clear communication across all the parties involved. The miscommunication throughout there is what causes all of the issues going on. You know, Close Encounters and ET is about communicating across species, uh, be it through using music or VC species. Um, Try saying that real quick. Species, species, species. Uh, in the color purples, you know, Celie grows up as a person whenever she really communicates with the woman in her life. Be it with Suga through song, or just talking uh, with Sophia, or finally getting in touch again with her sister through through her letters. That's when she really develops her courage. You know, Empire of the Sun deals with communication and crossing the language barrier and culture barrier between Japanese and the prisoners of war and finding some common ground. And you know always um, is about communicating with our loved ones, you know, even after death. You know, even Indiana Jones deals with communication, but this time across eras, you know, the clues and hints that Indy's finds are left for him by people from a bygone era um, to carry on whatever legacy they wanted to leave behind. You know, at the end of the day, I think if there's a single word that describes Spielberg's films and the themes behind it, it would be optimism. Uh, optimism that the world around us uh, has wonders that we have yet to discover, optimism in our fellow man to do the right, honest thing, optimism in the idea of middle-class Americana values, optimism to be able to put aside our differences, optimism in being able to survive and move past our loss of innocence and still maintain a childlike wonder to some degree. Perhaps it's a little overly sentimental, you know, most people say Spielberg films are, but then again, if you think about it, for somebody who has as much love for old Hollywood as Spielberg did, and who was able to go on and live his childhood dream of being able to become a movie maker that is one of the most widely renowned, respected, renowned uh, movie makers in history, you know, I think that optimism that it can happen is well placed. And, you know, maybe we'll see some cynicism creep into Spielberg's film as he grows up, you know, especially compared to these early couple of decades. Um, of not, but, you know, I, th I, for some reason, I doubt that's going to happen. So, you know, even in this time of pandemics and quarantine, of not knowing when we'll be able to go see a summer blockbuster again in theaters, um, I can't help but have some hope that, you know, everything will work out in the end, you know, especially when I look at the films of one Mr. Steven Spielberg. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Filmography in Focus uh, on early Steven Spielberg. Hopefully, even without the visual element in describing an audiovisual medium, I was able to illustrate my points clearly enough. 
Uh, if you want to explore more content about him, there is an extensive list of video essays and interviews I watched and read in preparation for this video. A full list of links can be found in the show notes, but credit goes to the following YouTubers. Uh, one quick note, some of these videos do reference films uh, outside of the ones discussed in this episode. Uh, Steven Spoke has, has had a long career after all. Uh, in any case, special thanks to Back to the Cinema, Collative Learning, Dark Corners Reviews, Entertain the Elk, Every Frame of Painting, Fandor, Geoff Stone, Films and Stuff, IMDB, Le Movie Geek, Make Stuff, Now You See It, Patrick H. Willems, Sir J, Stephen Benedict, Studio Binder, The Discarded Image, and The Take. Thanks again. Uh, for the June 2020 episode of Filmography in Focus, uh, even if there are not films coming out in theaters just yet, uh, Spike Lee is releasing his Vietnam War film The Five Bloods on Netflix this month. Uh, in honor of that, we'll do our first divergence of looking at director's works and instead look at works of films in the genre. It is in the tagline for this film for this uh, podcast after all. Uh, specifically, we'll be looking at films based on the Vietnam War from a variety of directors. You know, obviously, there are dozens of films out there that we won't have time to watch. And Vietnam's war films range from covering the anti-war movement to uh, 80s action exploitation films to films that have the main characters be Vietnam War vets but not send Vietnam explicitly. Uh, to get to a reasonable number of films, we'll focus on films that for the most part, take place uh, in Vietnam with the fighting going on and generally have some sort of awards recognition, uh, such as being you know, added to the National Film Registry of significant films or receiving an Oscar or you know, in some cases simply being a film I've always been meaning to see but never had a chance to. Um, after all, that's the whole reason I started this podcast. Um, I have a list on Letterboxd, um, but the 13 I will definitely be covering uh, are 1974's documentary Hearts and Minds, directed by Peter Davis, 1978's Coming Home, directed by Hal Aspie, starring Jane Fonda, 1978's The Deer Hunter, directed by Michael Cimino, starring Robert De Niro, 1979's Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, 1986's Platoon, directed by Oliver Stone and the first of his Vietnam War trilogy. 1987's Full Metal Jacket, directed by Stanley Kubrick. 1987's Good Morning Vietnam, directed by Barry Levinson, starring Robin Williams. 1989's Born on the Fourth of July, the second of Oliver Stone's Vietnam War trilogy, starring Tom Cruise. 1993's Heaven and Earth, again directed by Oliver Stone, uh, starring Tommy Lee Jones. 1994's Forrest Gump, directed by Robert Zemeckis, starring Tom Hanks. 2003's documentary The Fog of War, uh, directed by Errol Morse. Uh, 2004's 25th Anniversary of Miss Saigon on West End, starring Lea Salonga. And 2020's The Five Bloods, directed by my Spike Lee on Netflix. Uh, in addition to these films, I included a list of other films on the letterbox that, if there is time, you know, I might be worth checking out as well. Um, these include First Blood, uh, the Rambo movie, uh, Hamburger Hill, Casualties of War, We Were Soldiers, and Rescue Dawn. Uh, there were also films I found that have some unique take on the Vietnam War. Uh, one of them is a found footage film. Uh, there's a musical from Australia, um, Tropic Thunder, I guess, could be considered a uh, Vietnam War film. Um, and there are a bunch of films actually coming from a non-American perspective that I'd be interested in checking out. Uh, there's one from the Russian North Vietnam perspective, uh, a couple of John Woo Hong Kong flicks uh, based on the Vietnam War, a couple of films from Korea, uh, more than a couple from Australia for some reason. Uh, and, you know, 
probably pretty importantly, the Vietnamese experience. Um, there was one found, funded by the Vietnamese American community about the fall of Saigon, as well as you know a documentary about a soldier, a Vietnam Marine, uh, who fought alongside Americans. Um, heck, you know, there's even a Disney film uh, set in the Vietnam War that I'm kind of curious to check out on Disney+, Plus. so uh, we'll see how that goes. In any case, the link to the letterbox list with all of those upcoming films can be found in the show notes. If you have any thoughts on Vietnam War films, uh, any reactions to Steven Spielberg's early work or my analysis, you know, or feedback or suggestions for this podcast in general, please shoot me an email at filmographyandfocuspodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at filminfocuscast. Uh, your comments may make it into the show. Um, you can find us on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, all the usual places. Please leave us a review if possible. Um, our intro and outro music is provided by Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, stay in focus, and remember, the show goes on. Thanks, guys.